I remember when my son Drew was born, we brought him home from the hospital and everything changed. <clears throat> Uh, my, my amount of sleep changed. <laughs> uh, the way I heard things in the house changed. Uh, I, I saw our house differently. I, I spent our budget differently. That, that one little life had quite an impact on our family. A few years passed by, and it's Halloween, and this particular Halloween, Drew wanted to be Robin Hood. So Paul made him this green felt cape, and it was so long that it kind of dragged the floor behind him as he was going. It worked great for Halloween and where it was. Halloween came and went, but the cape stayed. And he kept wearing it because it was a perfect outfit for whatever uh, hero he could imagine he wanted to be in that moment. So Superman, Batman, Power Ranger, whatever it was, right, he's going to wear the cape. That was going to be the thing. And then he wore that thing until and he grew so much that the cape barely came to his knees. But it worked really well. In every one of those moments, he always played the hero. He was the one who made a mark, who left an impact. Everybody wants to have an impact. We see that everywhere. We hear it from Political candidates who promise they're going to make an impact. Some people choose a certain career because it's going to have an impact on, on the, the world. Volunteers who coach or volunteer in community organizations want to give back in some way, make a difference. Everybody wants to make an impact. Nobody wants to live a meaningless life so that when you die, you just free up some space on the planet. Everybody wants to make an impact. And that's true of churches, too. Churches start and dream of making a difference, impacting lives or a community or impacting eternal destinies even. And I mean, no church wants just to be a, a building where uh, religious activities happen in a per certain piece of real estate every week. We want to leave a mark, have an impact. And how do we do that? Well, we, we plan and we organize and we dream. We have inspiring gatherings and we educate and we develop programs and we raise money and we technologize and we communicate and we advertise and we have events and, and we uh, get to know our community and the needs and we respond to those needs and we seek to expand our reach and, and we engage in all of those things in order to make a difference. And all of those things are no different from what you would hear from any Fortune 500 corporation. Those are just the things that organizations do, and we can learn a bit from that. But here's the thing. We're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just an organization. We're the blood-bought saints of the living Savior. We're the, the body of Christ, and we're distinct from all those other organizations. We're distinct because, because our goal is to bring glory to God and make much of Him our focus is to make disciples, not just converts, but people who have been captivated and transformed with Christ at the center of their life. It's a global kind of thing. And by what we measure, we don't just measure what you can put on a, on a spreadsheet somewhere, put on a quarterly report. We, want to put, we measure not just in time, but, but in eternity. It's different. And that happens not just by human effort, or dedication, or best practices. There's supposed to be something supernatural about the church of Jesus Christ. Something supernatural. This is God's church. We're God's people. We're on God's mission. So we want to see and, and experience God's impact. 
So this morning, as we continue our journey through the book of Colossians, we want to go ahead and turn there in your copy of the Bible. We're going to move into a new series. The title of the series is just Divine Impact. We want to understand how God has designed His impact to take place through us. And just a reminder, now Paul is writing to his, his friends in a, in a house church, or maybe a group of house churches in Colossae. And they've been troubled by some teachings that have presented Jesus as kind of the, the base layer for faith, but other good things are added on top of that. Things like mysticism, other teachings, some experiences. So Jesus is the base layer, like a, like a plain yellow box cake, but that has unbelievable icing on top of it. And they're saying, that's what these things are. They're the icing, they're the fruit, they're the chocolate, and make that way. And Paul comes, and when he writes Colossians, he says, no, that's not it at all. Jesus is not the base layer. He's the whole cake. He's the whole thing. He says he is supreme. He's preeminent in everything. And so taste and see that the Lord is good and live his life and know his love. And now he turns to, I want you to know what it means to be impacted, have his impact come to you and through you in the world for the reality of who Christ is. And so we're in Colossians chapter 4. Ms. Amelia is going to come and read the scripture for us today. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? We're in Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to begin at verse 2. And Ms. Amelia is going to read that for us. Go right ahead. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open up a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, me. I appreciate it. Thank you. May you see them. So Paul's kind of shifting gears here. And he first thing he says about this, this impulse toward, toward impact is, well, just pray. It's kind of what you expect him to say. It's not impressive. It's not flashy. It's so ordinary that we may tend to dismiss it. Because most of our discussion about prayer in the church is we talk about prayer as a spiritual habit or a spiritual discipline, a spiritual practice that individual disciples ought to be a part of. And that's certainly true. But this encouragement is to the church as a whole, to the whole body. This is not just about the theology of prayer, the practice of prayer, but about the desperate necessity of prayer. Now, Jesus was very clear about this. In John 15, Jesus said this. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that last little bit of that is so comprehensive, isn't it? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not one aspect of anything that we do as a church can be done apart from him. We can spit out a lot of words. We can have a lot of activities. We can fill up our calendar. But there's no guarantee that that will have the life and the impact of, of Jesus about it. They will have the fruit that matches him. The only way that happens, he says, is by abiding in him, by remaining in him, by becoming desperately aware that apart from him, we can do nothing. A friend of mine tells a story of a time when his ministry was facing a real challenge. Everything that could go wrong had gone wrong. Every option seemed to be closed. So he shook his head talking to his friend and says, well, I guess all we can do now is pray. And his friend started laughing. 
started laughing at him. And he got so offended. He said, why are you laughing? This is breaking my heart. It's hurting our church. He's doing all we can do and pray. And his friend said, isn't that just awful? <laughs> it's awful. All you can do is pray. All we can do now is take it to God, our Heavenly Father, who knows us best, loves us most, who's omnipotent, who sovereignly controls every life and every resource, has plans that won't be thwarted at all. Yeah, all we can do is pray now. <laughs> he kept laughing. You want to see divine impact? Want to have divine impact? There's lots and lots of things we can do, we will do, we should do, but none of those things until we've done the praying on the front end. It's who we are. So what's that look like? What's this desperately necessary prayer look like? Notice, first of all, God-sized impact in the world comes through a church family who prays for it steadfastly. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And that's a word we don't use much, isn't it? Steadfast. That's such a good word. You hear the word steady in it. The roots are, are something that adheres something else uh, in kind of a sticky way, like duct tape, holds things together. There's a sense of constancy and unyielding commitment over time. Now, now we know what it is to make an unyielding commitment to something over time. Take, for instance, well, eating. <laughs> we do pretty well at that. We don't miss many opportunities to say, oh, I'm going to enjoy a, a good meal. We've been pretty consistent of that over time, however long our time or others been. We have consistently taken in nourishment. Or, or think about your job, meaning the demands of, of your employment means they expect you to show up and show up on time and do the job that they've They've hired you to do it. They're paying you to do And as you do that with consistency, steadiness, over time, then you remain employed. Stop doing that. You're not employed much anymore. Or maybe you, you, had, you had a child who wanted to have a puppy. And you're trying to explain to that. Now, it's great we'll have a puppy, but the puppy, you have to feed the puppy. You have to bathe the puppy. You have to give the puppy walks. And, and mom and dad are saying that all along, knowing they're going to be the one to feed the dog. And, you know, there's an unyielding commitment over time. Why do we do that? Why are we steadfast? We make these unyielding commitments over time for things that matter to us. So he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is talking, pleading with your heavenly Father. Lord, Lord, I long to know you, not just about you. Lord, I want to see you do some things that can't be explained by me. They're only what you have done. We sang it just a moment ago of, if you're not in it, I don't want it. Burn away anything that's not of you. There's this longing after that in that way. And that's not an occasional prayer, but a constant cry. The old hymn, we need you, we need you every hour. We need you. It's not just every hour, every minute, every second, every breath. We need our Savior. Now, now there's, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of holy stubbornness in this. I think Jesus invited us to this. He, he said in, in, Ma, in Matthew 7, he said, ask and keep on asking. It will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking and you'll find Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, keeps on asking, receives. And when he keeps on seeking, finds. And he keeps on knocking, it'll be open to him. There's a constancy, unyielding commitment in the same direction. Angela Yuan's son Christopher was her greatest joy. 
He was going to be a dentist just like his father, Angela, and her husband had moved from China back just after World War II and come and settled in the United States. We're making their way, and things are going so well. And while in dental school, Christopher came out to his parents as gay. Not as gay, but promiscuous, involved with multiple partners, and also a drug addict who was dealing to support his habit. He was kicked out of dental school three months before he graduated, moved to Atlanta, and ramped up the intensity on both levels, both the promiscuity and the drug dealing. Now, his parents had become Christians several years before, and had pleaded with Christopher to turn to Christ and trust him, but he wanted nothing to do with their faith. Matter of fact, one time, he even took his father's very first Bible and threw it in the trash right in front of them. Years went by. Ultimately, he was arrested on federal drug dealing charges into federal prison. And his third day there, they came back and told him that he had tested to be HIV positive. Still nothing changed. But all this time, for nearly a decade, Angela prayed, sometimes for hours a day, for God to move on Christopher. And one of her journal prayers was this, Lord, help me not falter or waver as I continue to pray. Help me not falter or waver as I continue to pray and trust and believe that your power is stronger than his stubbornness. Help me not falter or waver. We want to see God-sized impact and miracles here. It will be because we have not faltered or wavered, but have prayed steadfastly. Not as on Sundays when we're prompted, but as a way of life, we become a people of prayer in that way. We want to see God-sized impact in the world. Church family will pray steadfastly, but not that, we'll also pray expectantly. Continue steadfastly in prayer, he says, being watchful in it. Watchful. We're praying and then watching for God to move in response. We're saying that also a moment ago. We're waiting for you. We're expecting to see what you're going to do. Now, you see, if you're believing God, it makes no sense. If you don't believe anything, it makes no sense to watch for something to happen. But if I believe who God is and God moves, I'm trusting that when I pray, I'm going to see for God to move in response. This is a matter of believing God, of faithing God, that he will respond positively to prayers that match his heart. And we can have great confidence in God that he will do that because just after he said, keep on asking and seeking and knocking, and here's what he said. He said, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good deeds to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God's a Father who gives good gifts. But there was another time Jesus told a rather odd tale about prayer. He said, this is in Luke 18, he said, Jesus told them a parable to the effect they ought always to pray and not lose heart, never give up. He said, here's the parable, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That's the parable. And then Jesus asked a question. You hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? 
I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find people believing and expecting that he will respond? Now, the point of the parable is that God is not at all like this judge. That only he only responds to being pestered. God's good and kind and just. His heart's to bless and do good. But how we view God will, will shape our expectancy of how he's going to respond to our praying. Because if you think about God as a reluctant God, who's capricious and has kind of holding out, I'll answer your prayer when you meet this standard of groveling. I'll answer your prayer when you get this part of your life together. I'll answer your prayer when you, and, and say all kinds of things, if you'll just do it and keep on groveling, maybe sooner or later you'll reach your point, a tipping point, where he gets so tired of it, he'll go ahead and grant the prayer. Do you think of God like that? Or do you have a how much more heavenly father? He says, how much more? Will I give good gifts? I'm kind and generous, displaying power to his people. Which one of those do you think motivated Angela Yuan to keep pleading for Christopher for nearly a decade? Which do you think will motivate us as a Living Hope family to keep praying for God-sized breakthroughs no matter how long it takes? Here's a great question. Will Jesus find faith at Living Hope when he comes? Will he find a body of people who are praying, expecting, believing, trusting that he will move and act in that way. We pray, we watch, we're on the lookout because we want to see this God-sized impact in the world. It comes through a faith family that's prayed steadfastly and expectantly, but also prays gratefully, gratefully. He goes on and says, you're going to watch for it with thanksgiving. Now, that's interesting because it seems like Paul it's urging us to pray the thanksgiving on the front end. Usually we think of thanksgiving as kind of being after the story's already been told. Then we celebrate once we know kind of how it turned out. So the fireworks go off after the team scores the touchdown. As the couple leaves after the wedding, then we throw the rice or the bubbles or whatever else that you do. We celebrate afterwards in the middle of that. But this is different. He's saying with thanksgiving accompanies steadfastness and expectation. We're giving thanks to our Heavenly Father while we're still praying, while the story is still being written, while we're clueless about how this actually might turn out or what it might look like. So instead of just praying, God, we're grateful for all you have done at Living Hope. For these 40-some years, we're grateful for what we've seen in the last year, in the last six months, in the last two weeks. We're grateful for what you have done but we add to that, Lord, we're grateful for what you're doing right now and where this will all lead in the end. Because see, Paul said this. He wrote this letter from prison. He said this in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In all circumstances, the one you know how it turned out and the ones you have no clue how it's going to turn out. Pray, no matter where you find yourself, you pray, believing, trusting in that moment. Now, can we talk? It seems to me that I've noticed that a lot of good church people ask for blessing on their church, 
and then reserve the right to moan and complain about that exact same church at the same time. All before the amen's over, we're praying for God to bless and move, then we're griping about how things right now aren't quite where they ought to be, or they're not like they used to be, or like I wish they were, or like I wish they were at some other place where I was before. And the reason I've noticed that is because I know church people. And the reason I know church people is because I are one. <laughs> Anybody want to join me in confession this morning? Because I've done that. That exact thing. What if we committed to turn our griping to prayers of gratitude? Now, I know griping and complaining is fun and all. I get it. But there's not a lot of Jesus there. If I'm grateful in the middle of this, no matter what, here's what I can pray with gratitude. What am I grateful for? I'm grateful. Jesus loves this church more than we do. He died for it. Jesus knows this church the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, the stuff we don't have together yet, the places, the what we need, he knows all of that better than we do. We can be grateful that Jesus sees farther than we can see. He has bigger plans than we can dream. And we can be grateful that he's coming back. And on that day, the bride of Christ, the church, will finally be perfected and glorious and radiant and without any spot or wrinkle, but not until that day. We know that's his promise. That's what he's doing. That's how he's working. So while we pray for God's impact, we're grateful, not just for the goodness of divine impact we've already seen, not even for what's coming, but for the perfectly good timing, circumstances, relationships, struggles, sacrifices, questions, and more that are part of the story along the way. They're part of the story right now. So we pray. Say, Lord, we, we want to see God-sized impact in our world through us. So as a faith member, we're going to pray steadfastly and expectantly and gratefully, and we're going to pray missionally. There's a clear focus here for our praying for divine impact. In verse 3, Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So he says there the, the word that he wants in the mystery of Christ. He's talking about the gospel. The good news that by the life, death, and resurrection of God's only son, Jesus, our good, holy, sovereign God has made a way for rebel sinners to be reconciled back to him, to be forgiven, to have new life, to be adopted into his family, totally transformed, made new, pointing ahead to what he's going to restore in the end and, and advancing his kingdom wherever he is. So when we pray for divine impact, we're praying that by grace through us, God will do miracles to make that happen. And those kind of miracles begin in the hearts of spiritually lost people. Spiritually lost people are people who aren't where they're supposed to be. And where they're supposed to be is in a relationship with God, their creator, to know him, a relationship of love with him. But they've rebelled against him, run away from his love, which means they're spiritually dead. And they're lost away from him, separated from now. And when they die at this point, absent anything else, they will be in hell for all of eternity. And here's what we know. We look around Bowling Green, and what we know, everything we can tell, somewhere north of 75% of our greater community falls into that category. We are surrounded by people who do not know Christ and a whole bunch of other people who think they do and are deceived 
into thinking they already know him in that way. And here's what we want to pray. We're praying missionally. Open a door. Let the mystery be known. Let it be seen. We want people to be made spiritually alive in Christ. We want to see them forgiven and adopted and have their destiny changed. And they'll be transformed because they're new people. They'll be delivered and set free from addictions. They'll be changed from pride and selfishness and idolatry and hate and despair and all kinds of evidences of the sin and rebellion. And instead, they'll be made alive from the inside out with Jesus' satisfaction and contentment and kindness and love and hope and peace and generosity. And when that kind of transformation happens in any life, then it was in Christ as a new creation, everything that life touches changes. So when a new person with Christ's life changes and they're married, they go home and that marriage is different because that husband or that wife has the life of Christ and they're different. If they come to know Christ, then they're a parent, they go home and there's a new mama and new daddy for those kids because Christ's life is there. When that person has the life of Christ and they go to work, the life of Christ is in that workplace or in that classroom or wherever they might happen to go because God uses transformed lives to transform lives. That's the kingdom plan. In, with one more life, the kingdom takes root, takes one more step, and as that one more life begins to live that, then wherever that life goes, it pushes back the kingdom of darkness, brings in the kingdom of light. That's the way it works. Divine impact comes one life at a time, one new, forgiven, gospel-changed life at a time that unleashes the Father's good into the world. That's what we pray for. That's what we plead for. But not just about our ministries and where we go and all. Yes, we pray for all of that. When we boil all this down, we're praying this steadfastly and expectantly and gratefully and missionally, but ultimately we're praying it personally. We're praying it personally, one person at a time, because you know how that kind of impact happens at Living Hope. It happens as it happens in and through individual living hope members. You see, bodies grow as cells grow and develop and multiply and are healthy. So divine impact will grow through living hope, through us as a family, a church family, as divine impact is at work in the lives and hearts of living hope members like you and me. So Paul asked at the end, he said, pray that I may make it clear how I ought to speak in that way. I want to be faithful and effective in living Jesus' mission. We, we need to do the same. We've been praying a lot in recent weeks for revival. Revival, not an evangelistic campaign. Revival can only happen, you're going to be revived if you're revived in the first place. <laughs> and so it's for God's people to be revived to come to see the first love passion for who Christ is and to begin to see and grab a hold of that. We've been praying for the church for that to experience. But can I tell you, there's no some kind of anonymous kind of entity out there called the church. It says all the time, oh, the church should or the church ought to or the church will or oh, if only the church would. We talk about the church if it's some kind of entity. Can I just remind you, brothers and sisters, the church is you and me. We're the church. You're the church. I'm the church. That's, we're the ones that make that up. 
This divine impact is not going to be some kind of divine zapping of some super beam of God's glory and power that will zap us all at one time. It will happen the way it's always happened, one life at a time. So you pray for yourself. You pray for your connect group members, your ABF people around you. You pray for people you're involved in ministry with, the people you sit on the pew with on Sunday, and you pray for them and for yourself and for them that we fall in love more with Jesus, the light in the word and the gospel, that we live holy lives, that we will be obedient to the spirit, that we live transformed, that we develop relationships and share the gospel with people who don't know him. His divine impact only comes one life at a time. That's the way it's always, always happened. The New Hebrides are a set of lonely islands off the coast of Scotland. A hundred years ago, it was a harsh place marked by harsh people who knew nothing of Jesus and didn't care anything for the things of God. There were no young people in any of the churches, and they talked that we, we've lost an entire generation. There were two sisters there who grew burdened over the spiritual realities of their community. Peggy Smith was 84 and was completely blind. Her sister Christine was 82. She was crippled with arthritis. And they began to pray for revival and plead with God for revival, for a move of God in their community. One verse in the scripture gripped them where God says, I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. They committed to pray for this two times a week in particular. And so on Tuesdays and Fridays at 10 o'clock p.m., the blind one and the crippled one would kneel in their little house at 10 o'clock in the evening and pray through until 3 o'clock in the morning. They did that for several weeks and then began to share with their pastor what they sensed God was stirring in their heart. And he called together some other men who gathered in a barn, and they joined them on those nights praying. God began to move in them. And after several weeks, God gave Peggy a dream of a man preaching, and the church is full of young people. After some discussion, it was decided they would invite Duncan Campbell, who was a pretty well-known evangelist. He was in Edinburgh at the time. And the pastor invited him to come, but but Duncan Campbell refused because he was scheduled to preach at a convention at that same time. Peggy said, I, I won't accept that. She began to pray. And she began to say, he will come. God will make him come. He will come. She even said to the pastor, go ahead and print the invitations and put them out on all the roads for the meetings. Within just a week or so, due to unforeseen circumstances, <laughs> the convention was canceled. And Duncan Campbell made his way by boat across to the Isle of Lewis in the New Hebrides within about 10 days. When he arrived at the dock, the mailman was there and said, oh, good, you're just in time to have tea and be ready for the meeting tonight. And he said, what meeting? <laughs> he didn't know what had been scheduled, but they'd already scheduled one. At 8.45 that night, they gathered in the church, some 300 of them, to hear Duncan Campbell preach. He preached and he said that he had a tangible awareness of God's presence, but nothing unusual happened. They dismissed everyone at 1045 to go home. Everyone's left. He's walking out with one young deacon who was there who had been among those men who had been praying in the barn. He lingered behind. And he said, Mr. Campbell, nothing is broken out tonight, but God is hovering over us. He is hovering over us, and he will break through any moment. And he fell to his knees in the aisle of the church and began to pray, God, you can't fail us. You can't fail us. 
You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods on the dry ground. You can't fail us. And just then the front door opened. It's now about 11 o'clock at night. The local blacksmith came in and said, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Oh, we're praying that God will pour water on the thirsty and floods on the dry ground. Listen, he's done it. He's done it. And when Campbell reached the door and looked out, there were 600 people gathered in the churchyard outside. Earlier that night, there were 100 young people in a dance hall. About the time that young deacon dropped his knees and began to pray in the church aisle, the sense of God suddenly fell on them, and the music stopped, and the young people, overcome by the conviction of sin and their need for Christ, made their way to the church. Hundreds more who had already been at home in bed, simultaneously, without any explanation, got out of bed, dressed themselves, and went running to the church. They went back in. There's 800 capacity filled the church where it was. And they stayed there worshiping and singing and on their knees crying out to God for mercy. There was no message. There was no, no altar calls. Just a sovereign moving of the Spirit of God in power until about 4 o'clock in the morning. They again dismissed. And as Duncan Campbell was making his way to where he would stay, someone said, you must come to the police station right away. And he had no idea why. They went to the police station. He got to the police station. There were another 300 people who had come there from, by bus, by car, from all over that area, prompted by the Spirit of God to come. They had to come there crying out, confessing sin, trusting Christ, coming back to God. From that night, that revival in the Hebrides went on for the next 30 years. It transformed lives, it transformed families and churches and communities by the power of God, all because two homebound sisters dared to pray there was a divine impact. And here's what we got to ask. Do you think God could do that again? That's a different way. Do you believe God could do that again? Here? Here. That kind of a divine outpouring of God. I just got to tell you, I think it would be the height of arrogance for to talk about this for a half an hour or so and not pray. So we're going to pray.